0: So I want to talk about, I hope, what will be practical for us that uh, directs our thoughts toward the exaltation of Christ. Uh, turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of those really critical portions of Scripture, and a lot can be, can be said about it. I'm not going to by any means come close to exhausting it. <coughs> One of the things I've learned as a pastor for many, many years is that people can easily forget the main thing. We can get sidelined and distracted and pushed off the main track so easy in our Christian experience, and it's really really critical to get back to the main emphasis. I just started last Sunday preaching through Luke 15. I've been waiting my whole life to get to Luke 15. And I told the people Sunday, if you think I'm going through this fast, you're wrong. I didn't wait all these years to get here and then go flying by. So get ready for a long siege uh, as we attack Luke 15. Luke 15 is that incredible chapter with the three stories that Jesus told, one about a lost sheep and one about a lost son, or a lost coin and one about a lost son. We call it the prodigal son. The lost sheep, a man had a hundred sheep, lost one, went and found it. A lady had ten coins, lost one went and found the one. father had two sons. One was lost, and the father went out and embraced him when he came back. But the theme of the chapter comes at the end of each story when there is a great celebration. You remember the shepherd when he brought the sheep back, called the whole village together, and had a celebration over the sheep that was found and you remember the woman called her neighbors, her friends and neighbors in the feminine and the Greek, her lady friends and neighbors, to come and celebrate when she found the coin. And you remember the father killed the fatted calf and put on a party to end all parties to celebrate the return of the son. And all of that depicts the joy of heaven over one lost sinner recovered. All those stories... They really aren't stories about sheep and coins and lost things and found things. They're stories about what makes God rejoice. The joy of God. You know, we talk a lot about the attributes of God, the incommunicable attributes of God, like omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, immutability, eternality. Those things that are true of God and of no one else, they're incommunicable. We we know about those. We talk about the communicable attributes of God, The things that we possess in some measure being made in the image of God, we we understand uh, God's righteousness and holiness. We understand His justice. We understand His wrath and His anger. We understand His compassion, His mercy, His love, His grace. Those things which in some measure are communicated to us and we have some experience of those things, even more so as we are redeemed and the Spirit of God activates those things in our life. But rarely do we ever hear about the joy of God. And we look at Jesus and we say he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. If you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says someday I'm going to recover you Israel, someday I'm going to bring you back from all your suffering and all your punishment and I will rejoice over you. And the same thing as in Ezekiel 34, someday I'm going to bring you back and rejoice over you. In Isaiah 62, someday I'm going to rejoice over you. In Zephaniah chapter 3, someday I'm going to rejoice over you. Even come into the New Testament in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about a servant who comes back to his master and he's done with his gospel opportunity, what was right. He embraced his gospel opportunity and bore fruit. And Jesus says, Enter into the joy of your Lord. The joy of heaven is related to the recovery of the lost. It gives me perspective. I want to live a life that brings joy to God. There's enough stuff in my life and enough stuff in our lives to to sadden the heart of God, to grieve the Spirit, to quench the Spirit. There's enough of that. I want my life to bring joy to God. I mean, isn't it amazing to think that as a believer, I could participate in something that made God rejoice, Amen. that made the... The angels around the throne join in the joy that made the redeemed and glorified and triumphant saints in heaven also add their voices to the rejoicing. How could that happen? How could someone like me, the chief of sinners, if I can borrow Paul's language, how could I do anything to make God rejoice? Most of my life surely saddens Him. There's even corruption in my preaching and my praying and my worshiping because I can't detach myself from my fallenness. In fact, the thing that appeals to me, and when I wrote those words about heaven, heaven appeals to me, and it's not the gold streets and the pearls and all that. What appeals to me about heaven is the absence of the John MacArthur that I'm tired of living with. You understand that? How in the world can I bring joy to God while I'm here? And the answer comes when he's able to use me to bring one lost soul into his kingdom. Jesus said, They rejoiced in that village more over one sheep that was found that repented it than the 99 that didn't repent. The joy of heaven is tied to the conversion of the lost. This is how we make God rejoice. With that as a background, look at this text, 2 Corinthians 5. Always takes me a while to get where I'm going when I preach. But I just want you to notice there's a familiar statement here, and it's... Um, in verse 20, and you've heard this preached in sermons and at missions conferences and things like that, and it says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. We have been commissioned, we have been called, we have been sent into an alien environment, this world, by God, in the name of Christ, to do what? We're ambassadors here in this world to be used by God for the ministry of reconciliation. Let me read the text, verse 18. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Five times in those verses, a form of the word reconciliation appears. This is about reconciliation. This is about sinners being reconciled to God. And we are the human instruments in that work of God. So that God has committed to us, the work or the ministry of reconciliation, and the message or the word of reconciliation. We're engaged then in that which causes God to rejoice, that which causes the angels to celebrate, that which causes the glorified saints also to offer praise to Him. Heaven redounds with praise when one soul is converted, and so we become God's instruments in this ambassadorship in an alien world, preaching the message of reconciliation, carrying out the ministry of reconciliation. If you ask me what I do, I will tell you, I'm a minister of Jesus Christ for the reconciliation of sinners to God. That's what I do. I've told people that when I sit on, uh, on a plane occasionally, they'll say, what do you do? It's a typical question, right? And I guess, you know, the two worst fears of people would be that they were sitting next to a gospel ministry and an insurance salesman, you know. But people will say to me, what do you do? And uh, I will sometimes say, I have a great, great job. I, I tell sinners that they can be reconciled to God. Would you be interested? This is called cutting to the chase, right? This is getting to the point. But that's what I do. I tell people that they can be reconciled to God. I'm in the business on behalf of Jesus Christ of finding lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons, and telling them there is a loving God who will receive them if they'll come. I was sitting on a plane going down to El Paso, Texas to do a men's conference in the El Paso Civic Center. I was sitting next to an Arab guy. I was in the middle seat on Southwest Airlines, the dreaded middle seat. Crunch this way, crunch this way. And this guy next to me by the window is Arabic. And um, I got my New Testament, writing a little bit on my paper and notes, you know, what I'm going to say when I get there. And we're about 30 minutes into the flight, and this guy looks over at me and he says, uh, excuse me, sir, Oh, is that a Bible? And I said, yes, it's It's a Bible. And he said, oh, he said, may may I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, I'm new in America. I'm from Iran. And he said, I've just arrived in America. And everybody in my country is Muslim. Everybody. But I come to America, and there are all these different religions. And I'm very confused. And I have a question. I said, sure. He said, what's the difference, this is exactly what he said, between a Catholic, a Protestant, and a Baptist? (laughs) And I don't know how the Baptists got in there, but they did. A Catholic, a Protestant, and a Baptist. I said, hey, I can answer that question. And I kind of told him a little bit about, you know, Catholicism and sacramentalism, didn't use those words, sacerdotalism and you know, mechanical things in the Catholic Church, and how there was a, a great uh, reformation. And out of that, you know, the gospel was recaptured, and it's by grace through faith and not works. And, and I said, and Baptists go in category two, <laughs> for the most part. And I just made a simple explanation. So then I said to him, I said, by the way, sir, since you asked me a question, could I ask you one? Of course. I said, um, and I knew the answers, but I wanted to hear it from him. I said, do, do, um, do, 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 Muslims, uh, do Muslims have sins? He said, oh. He said, we have so many sins, I don't even know all the sins. <laughs> So I said, uh, I said, well, um, could I ask you one more question? He said, of course. I said, do you do those sins? He said, all the time. I do those sins all the time. In fact, he said, this is true. I'm flying to El Paso to do some sins. I said, really? This is a pretty honest guy. I said, uh, He said, yes, he said, when I was immigrating, there's a big immigration point through El Paso. When I was immigrating, he said, I met a girl, and we are planning to sin. (laughs) Whoa. So I said, um, how does God, as you understand that, how does God feel about your sinning? It's very bad. It's very, I could go to hell. There's a hell in Islam. There's just no redemption. There's just no salvation. So I could go to hell. I said, well, then, you know, why do you keep doing them? I can't help it. I can't help it. I said, do you have any hope that you will go to heaven? And I'll never forget what he said. He said this, I hope the God. They say the God because that's a direct translation of al-ilah, which is two words contracted to Allah. I hope the God will forgive me. And then I said something that I really didn't think about. It just came out. I said, well, I know him personally, and he won't. I'm telling you, it blew all his fuses. Because the God of Islam is so transcendent that no one knows him. He's apathetic, indifferent, and distant. And he looked at me... Like I was crazy. He, he looked at me and said, you know personally the God? Like, you know, what are you doing in the middle seat on Southwest, you know? I mean, if, shouldn't you have your own plane at least if you know God? I mean, he just didn't compute. But. but I said, I do know him personally, and he's revealed himself in his word, and he says that he is too holy to overlook your sin. And I said, you will perish in hell. I said, unless. And I said, have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? Because through him, you can be forgiven and reconciled to God. He said, really? And I gave him the gospel. Took his address. Sent him a bunch of material. Never heard again. But I think... There was a surprised girl in El Paso when he arrived. May have fouled up his weekend a little. I look back on that and say, really, that's what I do. I can't predict the outcome, but I understand the responsibility. We're in the recovery business. We're out there letting the Lord use us to find that sheep and that coin and that son and bring joy to the heart of God. This is our life. It's the ministry of reconciliation. Sinners can be reconciled to God, not on their terms, but on His, right? He's the offended party, right? The Only the offended party can determine what the means of reconciliation is. Let's talk about reconciliation for a minute, or a few minutes. How are we to understand this reconciliation? First of all, it is by the will of God. I'll give you... a. Four little points to think about. First of all, it is by the will of God. What I mean by that is we're not trying to convince the sinner and God at the same time. I mean, wouldn't it be tough if we had to convince the sinner that he needed to be reconciled and then had to convince God to take the sinner? But you want to know something? That's essentially Roman Catholic theology. You know why they pray to Mary? Do you know why Catholics pray to Mary? They I'll give you the I'll give you the formula. You don't want to go directly to God. He's way off, busy with you know running things in the universe. He's super holy, righteous. He's tough. He's a God of wrath and vengeance. You, you don't want to go to him. Um You could go to Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ is pretty tough, too. But Mary, she's a softie. And who can resist his mother? So you go to Mary, and Mary goes to Jesus for you. And Jesus can't resist his mom. And that's why they call her the co-redemptrix. Not because she co-equally paid the penalty but because she is the one who can convince the otherwise indifferent or hard Jesus to accept you, and then Jesus can work on the Father. This is because in that system, God is not, by nature, a Savior. And Christ, in a sense, of course, is the Savior, but not unaided. And you don't just go to Mary, you also go to other saints so that a whole bunch of people can gang up on Jesus. What a horrendous misconception of Scripture. I'm reading a book called The Glories of Mary. It's about that thick. It's printed by the, with the imprimatur of the Vatican. It's translated out of Italian into English. It is that much stuff on Mary. And you don't ever, what holds the Catholic people is you don't ever want to offend Mary because Mary is the way you're going to get to Jesus. So if you ever diminish Mary and you lose her, you have a big problem. Do we have a God that has to be Pled with by his son, who is pleading because he is being pled with by his mother, and without all of that stuff going on, God is not going to save. Let's look at the text. Verse 18. All these things, what things? Go back to verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things have passed away. Behold, what? All things are new. And all these things, all these new things, verse 18 are from whom? God. Listen, reconciliation is from God. It is by the will of God. God is not a reluctant Savior. It is God who reconciled us to Himself. Verse 18. Verse 19. It is God in Christ reconciling the world. Verse 20. It is God pleading or entreating through us. We don't have to convince God. God is by nature a Savior. That sets Him apart from all other gods, all other deities, all other false gods. You can study science of religion and you'll find a spectrum of deities that run from apathetic or indifferent to hostile and everywhere in between, but you will not find in any ethnology, any religion, anywhere, a God who is by nature a Savior, seeking to save the lost. You're not going to find a God who weeps, like Jeremiah 13, or who weeps through the eyes of His Son over Jerusalem, or weeps at the grave of Lazarus when He sees the terrible impact of sin There is no God like our God. And our God is a Savior. That's why in Titus, in every chapter, God our Savior, God our Savior, God our Savior. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, God our Savior, God our Savior, God our Savior. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, God is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. That verse can be a little confusing. That's the verse the universalists like to use. God is the Savior of all men. Oh, okay, everybody's going to get saved. That's not what it's saying. God is the Savior of all men, especially, Melista, a little adverb in the Greek, those who believe. There's a special way in which those who believe are saved. God is the Savior of all men in one sense, but of those who believe in a different sense. How is God the Savior of those who believe? He saves us spiritually and Eternally, right? Okay. How is he the Savior of all men? I'll explain that. He saves them temporarily or temporarily and physically. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. Clearly in the Scripture, God withholds his punishment from the sinner when the sinner deserves it. Right? Right? The soul that sins, it shall die, says the Old Testament. The wages of sin is death. death. God says to Adam in Eve in the garden, the day you eat, you die. I don't think it happened that way. Do you remember how old Adam was when he died? 900 plus years? What is that? He's supposed to be dead. He's supposed to eat and drop dead. What is that? You say, well, the seeds of death were planted, of course. But in the day you sin, you die. God has every right to do that. But God, by nature, is a Savior, and it shows up. That's what Romans 2 is saying. Don't you understand that the patience and forbearance of God with sinners is meant to lead them to repentance? If you wonder whether God is a Savior by nature, the question, people look at the Old Testament and they say, why did God kill this person? Why did God kill that person? You know, why did the ground open up and swallow all those in Korah's rebellion? Why did bears run out of the woods and shred a bunch of young people for yelling, bald head, bald head, at a prophet? What kind of a God has you go in and slaughter all the Canaanites? That isn't the question. The question is not, why does God take the life of a sinner? The question is, why does God let any sinner live? That's the question, and the answer is because He is by nature a Savior, and He demonstrates it temporally and physically as a way to to lead you to repentance. I mean, we look at the, the world around us, and we, we see what we call common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. They wake up in the morning, they smell the coffee, you know, they, they kiss the baby, they go out and enjoy the... Sunrise and smell the flowers and have a warm home and a family and eat a steak and sit in a soft chair and take a vacation and swim in the lake. And what is that? That's life, physical. That's sometimes the best of life. The question is asked, why do the wicked prosper? And the answer to that is God is patient. God is forbearing. God is a Savior by nature, and it shows up in His tolerance of sinners. Otherwise, they should be snuffed out the moment they sin. But then, we wouldn't be here, would we? Don't let anybody tell you God is a reluctant Savior. God weeps over the lost. You think about that parable of the and 99 left, and the one man goes out, when the shepherd goes out to find the one sheep, that's the seeking Father, climbing over the rocks and the crags, and in the crannies and in every little place inside of a cliff or wherever it is in that rough, rugged land. And a sheep looks a lot like dirt. They're the dirtiest animal, did you know, in the world? Because they have lanolin, and all the junk sticks to them. They look like a rock when they're lying on their side, helpless. And the picture is of a seeking Savior, a seeking God who goes and finds. And when he finds, he's got a helpless creature on his hands that he has to put on his neck, tie the legs together, and walk back from wherever he found it. And that shows the sacrifice that our God went to to bring us back. By the way, in ancient Near East, the cross was not the first symbol of Christianity. It came later. First symbol of Christianity and you see it in the art of the ancient uh, Middle East, Near East, was a shepherd with a sheep. And the artists would always enlarge the sheep so that he was almost the size of the man to show the burden that God bared, uh, had to bear to bring back his own to the fold. God is, by nature, a seeker and a savior. And Jesus made it clear, the Son of Man has come to seek, to save the lost. Reconciliation is by the will of God. He is gathering a bride for his son. Father is gathering a bride for his son. That's another sermon. Oh, but then everything leads to another sermon. and I know your pastor has that experience too. Reconciliation by the will of God. Secondly, it's by the act of forgiveness. How is God going to take the sinner back? Well... Verse 19. Only one way. Middle of the verse. God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. How? By not counting their what? Crespass. That's the only way. God has to overlook our sin. Can't be an issue. If our sin is an issue, we can't reconcile. What is forgiveness? I mean, you understand what forgiveness is. You can't look, you can't have reconciliation in any human relationship until there's forgiveness. Wherever there's been an offense, the, you're not going to get back together until somebody's forgiving. I don't care whether it's a marriage or among siblings or in family or friends or or whoever. God is going to have to set my sin aside if He's going to take me back. He cannot take me back without somehow making my sin a non-issue. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands. (laughs) How am I going to get there? You know, one of the things that was so starkly obvious about the Jews was they thought they could come back to God on their own without even asking forgiveness. You see, where is that? It's in the Luke 18 passage of the the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, even this publican, I fast, I tithe, I pray, take me. Here I am. Aren't you thrilled to get me? I mean, that was their religion. And and how did they come to that point? Romans 10, Paul says this. They have a zeal for God, not according to knowledge. and And my heart's desire is for the salvation of Israel, but they have a problem. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God. What does that mean? They don't know how righteous God is. They think God is less righteous than He is. And they also think they're more righteous than they are. And so they can reconcile to God by their works. That was the big error. And that's the error of every religious system in the world apart from the truth. You know, there's only two religions in the world, you know that. Christianity and all the rest. Christianity is divine grace. All the rest is some form of works. Just two. They have lots of labels, but just two. But we understand the only way to be reconciled to God, we can't earn it, we can't gain it, we can't become righteous. It has to come from God, and God must remove our sins as a barrier. It is by this incredible act of forgiveness, Ephesians 1 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. How? By the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's why I said to the guy on the airplane, and I've said it to many people I tell people they can be reconciled to God, and all your sins can be forgiven. Are you interested? Frankly, that's a pretty interesting offer. All your sins forgiven? But that's necessary. Reconciliation is by the will of God, by the act of forgiveness. And it's by the means of faith. Third thing, by the means of faith. Look um, in verse 20. You know, you would say, well, well, wait a minute here. How could anybody turn that down? How could anybody turn that down? You know, complete forgiveness? But verse 20 says, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating, pleading, begging through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why do we have to beg people? It's like coming along with a cure for AIDS. Getting all the AIDS people, all the people dying of AIDS, together and saying, "Please drink this." <clears throat> Why am I begging you? Or it's like getting all the cancer patients together and saying, "Look, come and get this shot, and you'll never have cancer again. It's over." I mean, I I couldn't even fathom having to stand and beg. Why are we begging people to be forgiven? Because it's very hard. Very, very hard. I wrote a book, I don't know if you've seen it, called Hard to Believe. Recently, it is very hard to believe. It's very hard. Why is it hard? Well, I'll just give you a simple little understanding of it. Jesus said this. Said it in uh, lots of places in the New Testament, twice in Luke and Matthew. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. That's what's hard. Take up his cross. Follow me. What are you talking about self-denial? What do you mean deny himself? Well, let's just spread it out over what Jesus taught. Uh, if any man does not hate his father, mother, sister, brother, can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to give up all your possessions, you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to hate your own life, you can't be my son. That's pretty strong stuff. That's not raise your hand, walk the aisle, la, la, la stuff. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty heavy stuff. Jesus said, don't even think about coming until you've counted the cost like a man who builds a tower or a man who goes to war. To see if you're really serious about this commitment. Don't put your hand at the plow and look back or you're not worthy of the kingdom. It's hard to believe because it's the end of your life as you know it. That's why we have to beg. Jesus didn't come, listen, didn't come to bring you self-fulfillment. He came to call you to self-denial. This isn't about Jesus wants to fix your, fix your marriage, make you happy, bump you up a few notches on the success scale, heal all your diseases and, you know, help you hit home runs. Score a touchdown, you know, that kind of stuff you see on TV. That isn't, that isn't the gospel. The gospel isn't Jesus jumping in to get on your bandwagon to fulfill your dreams. There's a silly book out there now called Something About Dreams, written by Bruce Wilkinson. It says, dream your dreams because God planted your dreams in your heart, and all God wants to do is help you fulfill your dreams. When it says, let uh, let anybody come after me, deny himself, to deny yourself is basically a word that means to refuse to associate with. So what you're saying is, Lord, forgiveness is so important to me. If it costs me everything, that's fine. I have nothing of value anyway. Jesus went on to say this, whoever loses his life shall find it. Whoever holds on to his life will lose it. Just ask this question. What are you willing to give in exchange for your soul? But we let go of self very, very reluctantly. And you see, today in the church, a gospel has been designed a pseudo-gospel, that doesn't even ask for that. That's sad. Because people think they're Christ's when they're not. It's hard. That's why we end up in verse 20 pleading, begging. Because you have to give everything up. Luther in his uh, 95 theses he put on the door at Wittenberg that launched the Reformation. Number four of the 95 was that true repentance is characterized by self-hatred. I was listening to Christian radio up in Pittsburgh today. I was driving from, I don't know, somewhere in Pennsylvania to somewhere else to the airport. And uh, there was this well-known Christian preacher on there, and he was saying, you have to love yourself, you have to love yourself. If you don't love yourself, you know, you can't love God, you can't love other people. And I was just, I was saying, what is he talking about? Because Jesus said, you have to hate yourself, you have to hate yourself. It isn't some kind of a, a masochistic self abuse. It's a hatred of everything you are as a sinner. And it's a desperation that says, I give up all of it. That's what confessing Jesus as Lord, I give it all over to you. That's why it's hard. You know, we have these little simple gospel messages and then the organ starts to play and somebody says, you know, pray this little prayer now you're in. Well, where's the struggle? Where, where, where's the battle of the soul? Jesus did more to push people away than any modern evangelist I've ever heard of. He said many of you are going to try to enter the kingdom. You're not going to be able to. You're not going to be able to. Because you, you won't be able to let go of yourself. That's the kind of repentance and faith that's called for. So the ministry of reconciliation is by the will of God. He is by nature a Savior. He set it in motion. It's the truest expression of his heart and brings heaven its highest joys. Reconciliation is by the act of forgiveness. It can't happen unless God sets our sins aside. Reconciliation is also by means of repentant faith, and that's a very difficult thing to do, and you don't want to speed that process. You don't want to bypass that process. You want to make sure people really grapple with the issues of sin and self-denial that are essential to the gospel. And that leads us to one other point that, that everything depends on. Because we now have a serious issue we're facing. And here it is. God is the Savior by nature. God is willing to set aside our sins and not count them against us. That is to treat us as if we never sinned. If we will repent and believe, then the, 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 the dangling question here is, how can God, as Paul puts it in Romans, be just and the justifier of sinners? I'll give you an illustration. Let's say you go to court and you're a serial criminal. You've committed crimes to which you have confessed. And the evidence is is replete. You go to the court and you say, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did did that one, that one, that one. I did them all. And all the evidence is there and uh, there's other witnesses. Yeah, he did it, he did it. And the judge says, "Um, well, do you feel bad about it? Yeah, I feel really bad about it. Okay, you're free to go. And so get that guy off the bench. A judge has a responsibility to uphold what? The law. And the righteous sinner you can't do that. Well, if we expect that out of an earthly judge, what in the world is God doing willy-nilly forgiving people? How can God be, the, be just or righteous and at the same time the justifier of sinners? That is a dilemma. And the answer comes in verse 21. This, these, this may be the most important 15 Greek words in the whole Bible. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me read it again. He, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's the answer. Let me go over my conciliations. By the will of God, by the act of forgiveness, by the means of repentant faith and by the work of substitution if you understand that that 21st verse you understand the gospel if you don't understand that you don't understand the gospel it comes down to that this is the single greatest component in the gospel so let me unpack it a little bit okay how did god punish sin and forgive the sinner. Answer. A substitute. Took the punishment. And so God is just. And he's able to forgive. Having punished. Our sin. On the substitute. Now let me look at the verse. Closely. He antecedent God in verse 20. He made him who knew no sin. Who's that? Short list, only have one name on that list. Him who knew no sin, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, the writer of Hebrews says. And the, the, the greatest commentary on the holiness of Jesus is the Father himself. We said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-placed. He made him who knew no sin. And the Greek says, he made him who knew no sin, sin." question is, how? If you um, follow the teaching of uh, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, the, the Word, Faith people, uh, people in that movement, Joyce Meyer, other people like that, this is what they say. They say, on the cross, Jesus became a sinner. That's what Kenneth Copeland teaches. He, this is, uh, Jesus became a sinner on the cross, and God sent him to hell for three days, and after he went to hell for three days and suffered, uh, God raised him from the dead. You say, well, they, they don't understand it. It's more than not understanding it. That, that's, a, that's, a direct, that's a direct assault on what the Scripture clearly says, that He was a lamb without spot and without blemish. All right, he was as holy on that cross as He ever was in eternity before or since, or ever will be. He was not a sinner. That's why He said, my God, my God, and what's the next word? Why? There's no why if He's a sinner. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no basis in him for that forsaking. Uh, he did not become a sinner. You say, well, in what sense has he made sin? It says he made him who un knew no sin, sin. How? Here it is. And in this way and this way alone, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if, that's the key, as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. Did you get it? God treated Jesus on the cross as if He would personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. Though in fact, He committed none of them. That's substitution. God took the full fury of wrath against all the sins of all who would ever believe and spent it in full on Jesus. We can't even fathom what those hours were like before He yielded up His Spirit. That's only half of it. The last part of verse 21 says, In order that He did it for us on our behalf, He was the substitute for us, in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, oh, this, this is the same great truth of imputation or substitution from the positive side. On the cross, was Jesus a sinner? No. Are you righteous? No. On the cross, God treats Jesus as if he's a sinner, so he can turn around and treat you as if you're righteous. On the cross, God covers Jesus with your sin and pours out His fury so that He can cover you with His righteousness and pour out His blessing. Amen. That's both sides of imputation and both sides of substitution. You know, it even goes deeper than that. If I were God, I, and we can all be glad that's not the case, but if I were God, I might have said to Jesus, you know, it's a lot to ask to have you go down on that mucky planet and hang around for 33 years. I mean, what's the point? You ever ask yourself that? I mean, what's the 30 years about? 30 years he's living up there working in his father's carpenter shop and nothing happens except one trip to Jerusalem. We don't know anything else when he's 12. And Thawne's fully, fully conscious now of his, of his mission. But what, I mean, what is he doing for 30 years? He, and if I had been God, I might have said, you know, look, I do need you to go down, but I only need you for a weekend. You go down on Friday, they'll kill you. You can rise from the dead on Sunday and be back. Just, I just need you for the weekend. It'll all be over really fast. I mean, after all, the whole deal is about substitution. It's about death. and it just What is this 33 years about? What is the point? I mean, what, I'll tell you what the point is. When Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist, John said, wait a minute, this isn't right. I shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus said, oh, no, no. You have to do this. I must fulfill all righteousness. That's a way of saying I have to live a righteous life and touch every point of righteousness. Um he was at all in all points tempted like we are. That's chronological. He was tempted the way a little a uh, tiny toddler is tempted. He was tempted the way a little child is tempted. He was tempted the way an older child is tempted. He was tempted the way an adolescent is tempted. An older teenager, a young adult, a mature man. He was tempted at all points in life. What, what, what is? Why is he living that whole life being tempted and yet never sinning? Why, why? I'll tell you why. So that that perfect life can be credited to your account. On the cross God treats Jesus as if he lived your life turns right around and treats you as if you lived his Isn't that amazing and that is the great heart and soul of the Christian gospel there's no condemnation to us our sins were paid for God saw Christ as if he'd lived our lives And he sees us as if we lived his. Staggering. And now, Jesus isn't ashamed to call me brother. And the Father allows me to be a joint heir with Christ and is preparing a place for me in his own house. This is the glory of the ministry of reconciliation and the glory of our Christ we have a great calling to bring heaven joy by being faithful ambassadors. Well, we'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, it is an immense joy to see Your Word unfold before our eyes, the truth that saves, the truth that sanctifies, the truth that comforts, the cru- truth that edifies the truth that gives hope, we have hope in your word. And while some say the Bible can't be understood, it's not clear. We see it all so clearly. Thank you for giving us a message that is light to our, our minds, that is power to our lives. Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for Pastor Tommy and his faithfulness, his love for you and his love for the people. I just pray that his love for his people and their love for him will continue to grow to the glory of Jesus Christ, that the word will continue to go powerfully out of this place, not only from the pulpit, but through the lives of all who are a part of this great church. And may uh, the light shine brightly here. Christ being lifted up, may he draw men to himself. We thank you for this glorious gospel. We are unworthy to be the the beneficiaries of it, to know the benefactor, to have access into your glorious presence through Christ. May we consider the privilege that you have given to us to be ambassadors, to bring joy to your own heart as we proclaim this gospel. We thank you in the Savior's name. Amen.